Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Alfonso Gomez Rejon's new biographical drama, The Current War, Director's Cut. The film reveals how electricity titans Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse engaged in a battle of technology and ideas to determine whether direct current or alternating current would power the modern world. In addition to The Current War, Director's Cut, Mr. Gomez Rejon's credits include the feature films Me and Earl and the Dying Girl and The Town That Dreaded Sundown, the pilot for the series Red Band Society, and episodes of the television series American Horror Story, The Carrie Diaries, and Glee. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Gomez Rejon spoke with director Jonathan Mostow about filming the current war director's cut. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Okay, well, um, congratulations. It's a sprawling historical film with uh, a lot of like huge ideas and huge kind of towering characters. I think I'm going to start with kind of the most, um, start with the title, right? So it's The Current War, colon, The Director's Cut. So this film, as I understand, has been is sort of had a road kind of to get here, and can you can you talk about that? Why? Sure, why sure. it was. Uh, um, I may start crying halfway through the story, but it's it was uh, no, it was it was a very long road to get here, and and it feels great to be able to to finally um, screen my version of it. I had a long history with the Weinstein Company, and um, and then the company, of course, collapsed, and it was it, the film was in limbo for a bit. But um, and in that process of, of of rushing it to a film festival, the Toronto Film Festival, a few years ago, uh, there were a lot of compromises uh, with the film, and um, and I wasn't happy with it, and we rushed it and exposed it and were reviewed, and it was a, it was a hard period to be. It's a, the power of one screening and social media, and that defines you and defines the work that that wasn't. Yours, it wasn't a complete vision yet, and um, and so it, and after the company collapsed, it was it was it just kind of was shelved for a little bit until the studio found a new home, or the films that the studio had uh, that were completed found a new home, and eventually it made its way um, a few months ago to to 101, and we got it back and were able to recut the film, got the cast together to get um, again for a day of shooting in, in London, uh, a handful of scenes that I always wanted that we had cut in pre-production, and they were all incredibly supportive of of, of, of the movie, of me, and uh, and it came together quickly. New score, um, oh, you know, so many new elements, new scenes, new score, uh, a great new, you know, David Trachtenberg is here, who's one of the editors or the editor of the film, and and it just found its shape. It just need it hadn't found its shape yet. The um, the scenes were still, I mean, we're still a work in progress when we screened, and uh, to be defined by that was really hard. But so so it feels great to finally be able to to come here with this version. And and the reason of the title is very simple. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes is 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 a um, 
can make or break you and we were defined by old reviews and by having a new title that represented my vision it also allowed us to start fresh with a new page and hopefully if, uh, if the reviews are kind uh, hopefully they will be um, it, they, it, at least I'm not being hurt by old reviews based on old versions of the film got it well hopefully starting fresh won't be a pun with, uh, with that website so um you mentioned that you went back to London, and hopefully we'll have time to go back to that because, as I understand, the whole film was shot in England, which is kind of fascinating for such an American story. Um, this film is so different than your last film, right? So I'm curious, like, what drew you to this, and how did how did this how did this come about in your life? This film. Although someone just pointed out, and they were right, how similar they are. Um, thematically, um, it's an extension of the last. Uh, certainly what Tesla says at the end about all we leave behind are our ideas uh, is basically the end of me and Earl. And, and someone had to point it out to me, but I guess you're operating on some kind of subconscious level. You're making the same, you're telling the same stories or working through the same ideas that, you're, that you had a few years ago, certainly when you started making the movie. And there's certainly a lot of... Of, uh, of uh, celebrating creativity and invention in it that, that the last one did also in, in motion pictures. Basically, you know, it's the same film. <laughs> but, it, 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 and, but this one is... Uh, but, but, but what I liked about it was um, I'd gone through a few... Uh, I, I almost made another movie after me and Earl, and, and um, one of my agents asked me to, to look at the script one more time because I'd, originally when I read it, I only saw the top layer of it, which is electricity and Edison and Westinghouse, and it wasn't my thing. But this whole idea of of how far a man would go to be remembered, and um, this battle between ego and humility, um, were just ideas that I was now thinking about. And uh, I, I liked exploring grief uh, with Edison in his um, him trying to defy nature constantly throughout and 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 his wife died and he would then preserve uh you know her disembodied voice in a box and then that didn't work and it's a, her as a motion picture and that didn't work and then it's going to be a memory uh which is motion picture at the end um of niagara falls and i i i i, I understood him a little better and understood why he would go to the dark side without her and i thought that was a journey i wanted to take but it was really kind of examining these two sides of myself, I guess, of the ego and humility. And as a filmmaker, I guess you want to make films that will last. And as an inventor, you know, the whole, it's about coming up with solutions that are permanent. And, uh, but then that is at odds with humility of, of, of Westinghouse, not even wanting his name on anything or his photograph taken and just the work to speak for itself. And it was just ideas that I was thinking about that plus uh, the responsibilities and the ethics of, uh, around technology was something I had just started to think about uh, with the light bulb comes the electric chair and, and, I, and it's evolved even in the making of the movie how uh, technology and culture or come hand in hand and they evolve together whether it's the light bulb or the birth control pill or uh, the flushing toilet um, and then, but now things are moving so fast that I don't know if we're capable of adapting. You know, Facebook didn't exist 15 years ago, and now it swayed an election. What's going to happen in five years? And it was just—I thought it was in that 
in addition to being able to create a, a rock and roll uh, music, uh, not musical, uh, kind of a musical biopic, I always saw it as a very musical film. And, and one of my first meetings with Harvey, it was all Pennebaker and Maisel's and concert footage, and it was going to shoot like a concert film. I wanted to make sure it was clear that it was not going to be the King's Speech or something very formal. I wanted it to be something that was in constant motion. So all that made it a very exciting thing for me, both as a filmmaker and as a person. Um, Edison is a controversial character, and depending on whose narrative you go, he's uh, you know he's the villain of some stories, the hero of others. So how did you how did you approach that doing something historical like this um, with a huge historical character like that that hasn't been represented that much in in films that that at least I'm aware of. So um, can you talk about that that process and that challenge of of um, of Edison of right? Edison? Yeah, specifically. Well, Edison is such a complicated character. I, I first have to start with Michael's script. He was able to to create this from light bulb to electric chair, and and that's the section of, of his life that we're going to um, explore. We did work on drafts that that explored his second wife and the bigger house, and uh, which made it into an eight hour film. So we had to condense it and went back to his original structure, but explored Mary a little further and kept her alive in the movie um, long after she's physically dead. And um, and yeah, it was always hard to uh, to collapse time and make it. I always wanted to make it. It was supposed to be a, a quick film, a fast film, um, and. It had um, a certain tempo to it, so I couldn't cover everything. So we start collapsing characters. Uh, two wives become one. Southwick Brown is a combination of Alfred Southwick and Harold Brown. I just took one name from the two men that inspired him and made one person. And 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 so that uh, so I have to start with Michael's script that that created that structure for me to then play with, and then how dark could we go with Edison as long as we understood how he thought and and what Mary. The power that Mary had over him, that he could, she could reset him and center him. And without that, how dark he would go without someone like Marguerite Westinghouse that was a true partner to, to Westinghouse. So it did, you know, we did research, we read his, his, his uh, diaries, and a lot of the sometimes dialogue comes straight out of there, certainly the courtroom case as well, um, to get a sense of what he was going to be like. But it was more about capturing... Um, him and his relationship with the Westinghouse, and both as as not necessarily counterpoints, but uh, counterparts. So uh, it, it was much more nuanced than than the tidy, overweight, and the unkempt uh, showman. Um, I, I like the idea of 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 Edison thinks AC is bad simply because it's not his idea. <laughs> and um, and um, but uh, I think in in many ways uh, I liked. Edison as someone who created out of spontaneity, he created something impossible and then a demand followed. All of a sudden you needed the phonograph. And Westinghouse found a way to contextualize those inventions. And, um, but I think, uh, I think Edison saw him as an improver, not an inventor. Yeah. There's two moments that I, I particularly loved, which I'd love to hear your thoughts on. One is that, that line where he says, um, to his uh, kind of, the, I can't remember the character's name, the protege says, you're, you're just like me, but you're human, mm -hmm. you know? And then the other is when 
he's explaining that thrill of of getting the light bulb to work and, mm-hmm. and how it just starts, you know, it's going and it's going for 10 minutes and it's going for 20 minutes. And that, that I thought really, I think that's a hard thing to do is to capture sort of what is the emotional reality, what makes, what makes guys like that tick, what, what gives them their drive. And, and those, those two moments particularly, like I just thought were really effective in that way. Can you talk about those? Yeah, I think I have more to say about the last one than the first one. Um, you just like me, but a human being, I think it's, it's Edison at his, at his lowest and maybe at his most vulnerable after being pushed out of his own company. Um, and uh, but uh, but the, but the the last one is one of the most beautiful moments even to shoot because it was the only scene I had. It was it was like making two movies, one with Benedict and one, and then he left, and then Shannon came in, and then we shot his movie, and they only share two scenes: the courtroom scene, and, and they barely say a word to one another. They barely, and they and then the, as actors, they barely interacted. They just kind of kept their distance, which I loved. That their process is always fun to watch. And for that last scene, it was just them as, um, I liked, you could hold, the, you could, you can really, when editing that scene was, was, um, was we, I, could, I could be working on that scene today because you can hold the whole scene on, on Benedict and, and it sustains and you and on Shannon because they're doing such subtle, nuanced work. And Shannon um, is such a fan of Westinghouse. Is such a fan of Edison. He always was, and he still is. And you see his eyes kind of sparkle as he's telling a story of something that he wasn't able to do. Um, and uh, and that was just a beautiful, very human moment. And it just felt like um, you know these two men in many ways are very similar. You know, they were both tinkers since birth. The, the railway air brake and the phonographer developed concurrently, but. Um, and and it makes you wonder what would have happened had had he just put ambition and ego aside and had dinner at his house. So it's just as it kind of equalizes them for a moment. Um, you mentioned these two actors, which obviously is the next biggest thing to talk about. Um, for for both Benedict and Shannon, what were their issues coming into the film, and can you discuss the process of how you wound up selecting for the film and how you worked with them and and um, what what issues came up? No, I mean, uh, I had an opportunity to, because Edison, so because Benedict was attached to the project when I came on, and he was, uh, I was in London when he was in London, and Shannon was on another film. We did get a chance to rehearse and challenge every line of the script and, and really, really find the voice because, you know, originally I think uh, uh, there was a, an instinct that was, it wasn't wrong to come in and play Edison. You know, Edison was, mostly deaf and uh and the only recordings of him are when he's older and so the references made benedict was that made edison sound too old and i wanted the film to be about kind of these 40 year olds changing the world and have a youthfulness to it and uh so we decided to tone down the deaf because and occasionally you'll see a little lean uh, that's all it needed, you know, just to, to, to kind of address it, a little nod, we get it, and then it's not about him, it's his, our interpretation of him, or having to speak really loud, because it ages someone immediately, so it was about keeping, making those choices and crafting this version of, of, of Edison 
that captured the spirit of him and of the time as opposed to getting all the details right. And then I think he would have come off as like an 80 year old man because mm -hmm. uh, the only, you know, we heard some recordings of it and we just can't do that, the radio voice. Uh, and for Shannon, um, very little rehearsal. We talked about it at a bar in Brooklyn. He came in late because his movie that he was on was over schedule, he'd gone over schedule. So we just had one rehearsal in his gigantic house that we use in, um, in the film and shot the next day. And as soon as he just slipped into the clothes, he just, it was magical. I mean, really, I think I just love actors so much because they're, I don't understand. I think there's that Mike Nichols line that they, someone asked him, like, how do they do what they do? You'll never know. It's just, a, it's a mystery to me. And to see Shannon, who's so quiet and introverted in so many ways, get, get, get fitted and you walk into his trailer and you see him in his clothes. I remember when I walked in his trailer, he's getting fit for the first fit with his, his, and he was about to do his first scene and the lamb chops were on and he, his, he had a new voice, a new attitude, posture, everything changes. The clothes make you, make you stand a certain way and then he just got it. We just worked a little on a tempo and a rhythm because my thing was that both men had to be in the same world in the same time because I was intercutting two storylines and they had to have the same kind of American contemporary rhythm to their voices. And, and, and Michael and Catherine were a great kind of rock and roll couple. And, and then I had uh, Tuppence and Benedict, two Brits playing Americans, and they all had to feel like they were in the same movie. And, and so you're shooting in England. Uh, I'm assuming you're one of the few Americans involved in the production, right? Uh, we had um, a few of the producers were American. Michael Ryder was American. Everybody else was, uh, because you, you, you sh we shot in the UK primarily, well, for a number of reasons. The amazing crew, amazing, we had to recreate this world somewhere. It doesn't, ex it doesn't exist in Pittsburgh or New York, really. Um, and, and as a part of the tax break, you, you hire from, uh, uh, from Europe, EU, UK. Um, so, but that's how I got Jan Rolfs as a designer who I knew, you know, he has worked from the Peter Greenaway movies, The Cook, The Wife, A Thief, and Her Lover, and I love his, it's just a very, he's very bold in his, his choices, and that's what the movie needed. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess so, our, our editor was American, uh, but, but most of the, the rest of the crew uh, from most of the heads of the department were, were, were uh, from Europe, yeah, European. And, and when I say it's very different than your last film, I mean, this is a historical epic, right? Your other film was, was a very contemporary, intimate, you know, youth-oriented film. So in, in approaching something like this, which is like kind of a big thing to take on, what were your, um, you mentioned already, you wanted to keep, kind of keep it moving and, and all that, but what did you have... Did you go back and look at other historical films and go, well, I don't want to, I want to not repeat that, or I here's something that that really works for me, or I mean, how did you, how did you approach taking something historical and making it relevant to a contemporary audience? Um, well, I, I didn't, I didn't worry about the size of it. I, in fact, the bigger the better. I mean, I just, I love filmmaking. I love getting lost in the world and creating a world that we could do. I mean, Chung and Chung, who shot the film, was there, this is the third thing we do together. Our, I mean, our rule was there are no rules. And uh, we just didn't want it to be a, an old-fashioned, formal portrait of a time that was 
all about innovation. It was, the, it was, you know, it was about the future, not about the past. Um, but uh, ultimately, it comes down. I mean, ultimately, all, all the films are all intimate because it's you looking into an actor's eye, um, and the world is happening around you. But uh, creating that world um, was, of course, I know it's very different from the last woman. Nor do I want to just make small YA movies about cancer, I mean, uh, creativity. I want to create. I want to discover things about myself, but also uh, get lost in different worlds. And I thought this was. This is a world that was, you know, Social Network 1893. I thought that would be a very exciting world to, to get lost in and create and document in some way through uh, my lens or our lenses. Now, um, for people who don't know, you, you have a really interesting resume because you have worked for three um, pretty incredible and very all three very different filmmakers. Um, so I'm curious if you could talk about that a little bit and... Was there anything that you learned from working for those directors that have informed your own directing career? So the directors you're talking about, Scorsese, Nora Ephron, and Inyaritu, um, they've been um, huge figures and guardian angels in my life, and through them, other people that have become uh, very close to me, like Thelma Schoonmaker um, and Nicholas Pileggi. And um, I, I feel, I, I don't know how... I got a seat at the table, um, but, um, but it, it started with an obsession over Scorsese movies, and that led me to New York, and, and you learn a little from each. Ultimately, you can't learn how to make movies because you see, hopefully see things your own way, but, um, but I think they all, um, I think mainly humility, oddly enough, is, is the bigger they got, uh, the more I learned, uh, you know, the Scorsese, you, you can't have a conversation with him without him talking about everyone that came before him um, in film history and, and how little one knows. And, um, and, and so it does, it, 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 what it did, it inspired me um, to um, keep learning about film history and always reminding, always remind myself how little I do know about it. But I was very fortunate uh, that they all, uh, I mean, Nora Ephron got me into the guild. Uh, she literally forced Paramount to get me into the guild um, on one of her movies as a second unit director as before that I had been her assistant. Um, so uh, that generosity and they saw something uh, that I may not have seen uh, about myself that uh, certainly gives you the confidence to, 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 keep, to keep at it. And now Scorsese is an executive producer on this. So what was his involvement um, in the production? Your other question about seeing movies, preparing for this. It was mainly photography, that, that um, early experimental color photography, David Bailey rock and roll photography. It was a lot of David Bowie for Tesla and Jagger and Dylan and Patti Smith and, and the young Stevie Nicks. It was, it was the direction that, that uh, it, my office was surrounded by images, so every department knew that they weren't, it wasn't a movie where they were supposed to kind of replicate everything exactly, but it was kind of a bit of a direction, literally, of, of go this way and that way and, and surprise me. But that was that answer. But um, the uh, Scorsese uh, really saved my movie uh, because I have a, a, one of my agents uh, uh, or my team were very smart in that they uh, included Scorsese in my deal before I made a movie with Harvey. That if it ever got bad and... and my my final cut rights weren't um, I don't know a pal to, uh, that um, 
and we couldn't agree on a version of the movie that Scorsese would get final cut. And then the studio collapsed and, and that was that. And then we all read in the trades a year or two later. This journey has been incredibly surreal, but we all read in the trades that the movie was going to be distributed, released internationally, and we just all called each other. And of course, my question was, which version? and who and, and what cut and, and, and were able to stop that process because Scorsese had technically never gotten his final cut. And as soon as Scorsese got the final cut, he handed it to me and allowed me to finish the film as I imagined. So, so the whole, the, the big um, New Yorker piece and all that, that, so that dropped at what point when you were in the process? Um, two months before our release. It was at the... At the at the height of, uh, we were literally cutting post TIFF um, uh, in the offices when it broke. It was a very surreal time. Yeah, I can, I can only, um, I can only imagine. Um, what, what do you, what do you think? I mean, you've obviously thought about this a lot because of the film. What's your take on sort of when you look at, I don't know, Elon Musk or Steve. Jobs or or the people that I guess are sort of the modern day equivalents of this. What is thinking about these characters? Is it giving you insight into these guys? Do you think you understand them in a different way than than the rest of us do? No, I, I don't think I understand them better than anyone else. I, I I I it was fun to get into their heads for a little bit in, in, in inventors' heads and and but what is interesting is uh, I, I don't think anyone creates something. I don't think Edison created the light bulb knowing that the electric chair would follow. And that's the mystery when, when it gets into the wrong hands and, and when, it, when it kind of it starts to move faster than we can adapt to it. I mean, I keep reading about our consciousness being uploaded to the cloud in three years, and, <laughs> and it's all possible. And uh, I think, um, I think the, the responsibility that comes with inventions is something that must cross their, cross their minds. Mm-hmm. Um, what for you is like some of the favorite moments for you in making the film? Oh, oh God. Uh, I love making films. I, every moment on set, I, 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 there's no other place I'd rather be. Uh, um, we had a wonderful time making this film. Post was a different story, but actually physically making the film, I was just surrounded by a lot of just equally crazy artists. And, 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 and Chung Un Chung has, has been a brother to me. And, and because we plan the movie so carefully in pre-production, storyboard it carefully and then let it go uh it uh it's very freeing knowing that you have a partner who 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 gets what you're trying to do and 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 how you're trying to tell the story and it lets you relax and focus on the actors but it was a it was an absolute joy just uh working with these fine actors it's uh that's the biggest that brings me great joy the technical and the visual is always it's 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 how i started how i got into it before i saw mean streets and realized movies could be personal, and that really changed me. It, I was fascinated by the craft. Um, so that has always been a part of why I enjoy making films, the actual making of it. But, uh, but any moment with an actor, when you see them deliver a line or, or a note or, address, or give them a note in the way they, they express it, uh, it's, it's just a mysterious process, and, and, and um, I can't think of one right off the bat. Well, sort of go back. Something I was asking before about the difference of shooting in England versus here. The, you know, the first movie was mostly young cast, all American actors, and here you're dealing mostly British cast. Um, 
did you, what are the differences for you and just sort of how those actors approach the work? You know, it, it, I don't even, it doesn't necessarily even have to be the, the actual process of shooting the film. It could be how they, you know, just the whole vibe of it, how they come to the set, how they, how they communicate with you. I noticed that uh, it, I noticed I didn't I, I don't it didn't seem that different from all the actors every every process is different so you try to just create a, a space that uh, that is safe and creative for them um, uh, I did notice we cast a lot of the small roles the small and there are a lot of supporting roles uh, out of the theater in, in London I love theater and so it was a great joy to go to the theater find someone you like and then they come and audition. And uh, they're just so well-trained in England. Some of the greatest acting schools are there. So they, they come so prepared, and they know the text so well. And they're so respectful. And, um, but it was the joy of, of, of all the little characters. And they, they, they could be in a, in, in a gigantic play uh, in the West End, and they come and play, do a, come in for one line, and they do it as if it's, it's the lead role with, with such humility. Um, that was, I never had that experience because I'd never worked with such a, sprawling cast um but 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 other than that it's just about what's right for them it's yeah i mean one of the things i admired at having shot in england is is a lot of actors can technically do an american accent mm. but sometimes it just sort of abridges their acting part of the brain is just thinking about the accent perhaps and it just they sort of they're just not as good as they are in their natural accent yeah and i, I didn't feel this here if everybody felt like fully realized in in their you know performance. Yeah, Benedict and I worked a lot on that, and we had a great dialect coach as well. And he loved being corrected if his dialect coach didn't catch something. And then of course we would tweak things occasionally because I was obsessed with him being absolutely perfect American. Um, uh, and the smaller roles, I was okay with letting an accent come and go. Sometimes the American, sometimes it sounded too American, like mm -hmm. a fake American. Yeah. But it was okay if if. Cochran, his uh, Westinghouse's attorney, uh, who was Irish and had been in New York for 15 years, he would have a little bit of an Irish accent. He was Irish, so he just let it go. Um, and so occasionally it was okay to have other accents kind of, kind of living among them and, yeah. and, and not so flat American. But it was important for me that at least the four uh, leads uh, had a, a more contemporary rhythm to them. Got it. All right, well, I'm getting the times up thing, so... Thank you. Congratulations on this film. And uh, thanks for sharing. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for more great Q&As with directors Martin Scorsese and Robert Eggers. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. <laughs>